This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi everybody, this is Alan Fassfeld speaking and you're listening to episode 4 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast's second season. This show is entirely supported by the pledged support of my Patreon supporters, so here is a special shout-out to Peter, Frank, Margot and Catherine. This is one of our special Science Explainy Bit episodes, where I drill down into the sorts of science and astronomy concepts that are so basic, we tend to gloss over some of them without ever fully understanding how they work. Today's topic is ballistic trajectories through gravitational fields, or as normal people put it, orbits. It turns out to be quite a simple topic, really. Much simpler than why planets are always round, which we covered last month. In fact, I really struggle to stretch the core idea out long enough to fill an episode. But all we really want to do here is explain how things stay up and why they go around without resorting to the inaccurate centrifugal force explanation. You know, the one where you ask people to fill a bucket with water and then you spin around and the bucket swings out and it spins around you without spilling any water and then you wave your hands and say, well, that's how orbits work except there's no handle on the bucket, just gravity. The truth is a lot cooler than that. So let's cut straight to the segment that I recorded a few weeks back where I explain things properly. One of my favorite misunderstood phenomena is orbits. As you've picked up by now, I have a fondness for those facts and bits of science that everybody was taught at some point, usually while very young, but that nobody really understands. I mean, we all think we understand these things because we were taught them at a young age and we hear them mentioned in movies or whatever, and we nod along because they're familiar concepts. And then one day a small child asks you to explain it, and suddenly you're stuck. You end up mumbling some vague words, and if you're lucky, the child accepts them, and then they go through the rest of their lives thinking that they too understand it. But maybe one day, if you're lucky enough, you're sitting in a university course, or you're reading the right popular science book, or and they start talking about whatever it was that you thought you understood, and instead of zoning out, you start to pay attention, and then you get that wonderful experience of enlightenment. This sense of understanding and knowledge fills your brain as you really truly understand a basic idea for the first time. It's quite wonderful. I've had it a few times and hopefully if I get this right, I might be able to give that to you too. So today's concept, orbits. My wife and I have been on a Star Trek binge for the past few months. Most nights before bed, we cuddle up in front of a laptop and stream the next few episodes of whichever part of the franchise we're working through, and it's all very lightweight fun. Now, if you've paid attention to the science words they like to use in that show, you'll know that each show has its characteristic jargon. Voyager, the one that we just finished, is big on power relays and subspace distortions, while Deep Space Nine love to reverse the polarity of things. But something that all Star Trek has in common is the concept of a standard orbit, or the idea of orbits in general being a place outside a planet where you put your starship or shuttle. It's like a sort of celestial parking lot. And we all just accept that because, let's be honest, it doesn't really matter, given that the science in those shows is just a backdrop. Space is merely the place where events happen. What I find interesting is that most people actually have a better idea of what an orbit is than the Star Trek scriptwriters. Ask your average person with a high school education about orbits, and they'll say something that involves things moving around the sun or the Earth in a circle in space. If you ask them what keeps things in their orbits, why they don't just wander off into space or fall down onto the Earth, they might mention gravity or centrifugal force. 
But then they also want to struggle because school education generally doesn't really explain how any of this comes together. Some people will abandon the idea of orbits altogether and say that things stay up in space because there's zero gravity. And these people are wrong, of course, because gravity extends forever. Even as it weakens with distance, it never goes away, so there is technically no such thing as zero g. Objects in space have to orbit if they are to avoid simply falling down onto the nearest star or planet. So, what's the deal? How do all these things come together? Personally, I think the best way to understand orbits is to go back to the guy who wrote the first textbook about it, Isaac Newton. Newton said we should imagine a cannon installed on the top of a tower. Along with the cannon, you've got a nice big stock of cannonballs. And before we do anything, we heave one of those balls out of the window, and it falls to the ground in a predictable way. Gravity pulls on it with a constant force, and since we're on Earth, that force causes the ball to speed up by 9.8 meters per second every second. So after one second, it's traveling at 9.8 meters per second, which is a little under 35 kilometers per hour. After two seconds, it's falling at 19.6 meters per second, or roughly 70 k's an hour. Three seconds, it's doing 135 kilometers an hour, and so on until eventually air resistance and drag come into play. Now, let's fire a cannonball out sideways so that it's traveling parallel to the ground. Assuming we have really good eyes that can track the ball accurately as it flies off at whatever crazy speed it's moving at, we see that while the horizontal speed is pretty much constant, pretending for a moment that there's no drag from the air resistance, it's also at the same time falling down towards the Earth. And this falling happens at exactly the same speed as the ball that we simply dropped out of the window. So far, so common sense normal. So, if we were to draw a picture of the path that the ball travelled through the air before hitting the ground, uh, it would start off pretty straight, but then curve downwards until the ball hit the ground. The curve, under perfect conditions, with no wind or anything to complicate matters, is a perfect parabolic arc. If we put more gunpowder into the cannon and launch the ball harder, the same thing happens, except that now the curve is a little more stretched out. The ball is going faster, so it goes further, but it still takes the same time to drop to Earth. Maybe not so common sense obvious, but not such a stretch of the imagination either. And that's fine. We can continue building bigger and bigger cannon with more and more powder, launching that ball harder and faster. And the curve gets more and more stretched and the ball goes further and further, but always eventually drops to the ground. There's just one wrinkle here in this picture. The Earth is actually round. So, if your cannonball travels far enough, the curvature of the Earth means that after a few tens of kilometers, the ground underneath the ball will soon be several meters lower than it would have been the case on a flat Earth. So, if your cannonball travels far enough, the curvature of the Earth means that after a few tens of kilometers, the ground underneath the ball will soon be several meters lower than it would have been with the case with a flat Earth. So, the cannonball has a little further to fall, and this means it gets to travel a little bit further before hitting the ground. So now things are getting interesting. Shoot that cannonball hard enough, and the downwards distance starts increasing, which again doesn't take too much imagination, but the direction of down changes too. Now, if I could draw you a diagram, this would be very easy to explain, but podcasts don't have pictures. So I'm going to try and draw a picture in your imagination. So first up, imagine the sphere of the Earth. Put little people all around it, and then think about what down means for each one of those people. In each case, down really just means in the direction of gravity, which is also towards the center of the world that they're standing on. Now, on that same picture, imagine a nice tall ball, um, 
Now, on that same picture, imagine a nice tall tower, and you're shooting cannonballs from the top of that tower. Imagine what the path would look like for a ball shot hard enough to land on the other side of the world. It curves, spiraling downwards almost, until it touches down. The reason we now have a spiral instead of just continuing with the parabola I described earlier is that as the ball moves across, the direction of down changes. It accelerates towards the center of the world, and that's the force of gravity in action, what we normally just call falling. You shoot even harder, and the ball goes further and further until eventually it goes all the way around the world and hits the back of the tower. If you shoot the ball hard enough, the Earth's gravity won't be strong enough to bring it back. It'll still curve, but not by enough to return it to Earth. That ball is lost in space where it'll coast forever through the void. But let's go back to the point where the ball makes it all the way around the Earth and hits the back of the cannon that fired it. If we were to shoot again and then move the cannon aside so that the ball misses, that cannonball would simply continue in the exact direction and at the exact same speed at which it was first fired. But let's go back to that point where the ball makes it all the way around the Earth and hits the back of the cannon that fired it. If we were to shoot again, and then move the cannon aside so that the ball misses it, that cannonball would simply continue in the exact direction and at the exact speed at which it was first fired. And so you can now see how it would continue in that path around the world forever. And this is what we call an orbit. An object orbiting the Earth is moving under its own momentum, but it's not resisting gravity, it's also falling. But the speed of its momentum means that it keeps on missing the Earth, and because the direction of the Earth's gravity keeps changing as the object moves, the direction that it's trying to fall keeps changing, and this leaves it permanently stuck, circling the Earth forever. Well, that's the theory, anyway. There are a few wrinkles that crop up. First of all, I talked about spirals earlier. You might think that if you were to shoot slightly faster than necessary, the ball would just spiral upwards and outwards, gradually getting further and further away from the Earth, but this doesn't happen. That extra bit of height that it gains as it tries to spiral upwards means that the direction of the gravitational pull doesn't change direction as fast. And so the direction it's moving ends up being partly against the direction of its fall. And as everybody knows, what goes partially up must come partially down. So it loses speed. And having lost vertical speed, it now begins to fall back, although it's still got its horizontal motion. And as it falls back, it accelerates and starts picking up vertical speed, so that when it shoots past the Earth again, it's back to its full speed. It then tries to spiral out again, loses speed, falls back, and the cycle repeats. So what we've got now is an orbit that's elliptical, or oval-shaped, instead of being round. If the speed is slightly too low, then the opposite happens. The ball picks up speed as it falls from the tower until it reaches a maximum speed when it's close to the ground, and if it's still fast enough to miss, then it starts slowing again until it's back where it started. And then it continues to round the planet, speeding up and slowing down as it passes through its elliptical orbit. The second wrinkle is escape velocity. As I said earlier, if you launch that cannonball hard enough, it will go so fast that it will simply never come back. Although gravity will still curve its path, it's moving so fast that the curve never closes. Instead of forming an ellipse, it forms an open curve, a hyperbola. And I'm not going to explain hyperbolas, by the way. Suffice to say that like circles, ellipses, and parabolas, it's a conical section, and these things are much easier to describe with diagrams. You can check out Khan Academy's geometry section if you really want to know. The third and final wrinkle here is air resistance. On the real-life planet Earth, we have an atmosphere, which is quite thick as atmospheres go. It's thick enough that even at highway speeds, it pushes back pretty hard, and that's because air has got weight, 
So when you try to move through it at speed, it struggles to get out of the way fast enough and you end up compressing some of it in front of you. This is why hypersonic aircraft like the Blackbird SR-71 get hot enough that pilots can burn their fingers touching the window. And it's why meteors burn up so spectacularly when they enter the Earth's atmosphere. So, a cannonball launched at an orbital speed from the top of an existing tower would simply explode in a shower of molten metal after a few milliseconds. It's why putting satellites into orbit starts with getting them really high up, above the atmosphere. And since the atmosphere doesn't just stop at some arbitrary heights, but fades away pretty much forever, most satellites experience some tiny bit of drag which gradually slows them down, causing their orbits to shift lower and lower until they hit thicker air and start slowing more dramatically, burning up and eventually crashing into the ground. The International Space Station, which orbits at what we call a low Earth orbit of about 400 kilometers, it's in space by all definitions, but there's still enough air up there to give a measurable amount of drag. The station is also huge, so that its drag is much worse than would be the case for a small satellite, and in fact, it loses altitude every day. To keep it in orbit, it gets given a boost every now and then. Visiting spacecraft with spare fuel push it along to send it back up to its original orbit and keep it from re-entering the atmosphere. So that's the basics of it then. An orbit is the elliptical path followed by an object as it falls around a planet or star, or pretty much anything larger than it with a gravitational field. Which of course means that when people talk about astronauts being in a zero-gravity environment, they're wrong. They're very definitely in a gravitational field, and that gravity is working on them just as hard as when they're standing on the ground, except they're not resisting it. They are in constant freefall, and it's that same gravity which keeps their trajectory turning around the planet instead of just flying off into space. Now, this is really just the very basics. It's possible to move to a new orbit, adjust the shape of your orbits, deorbit, or accelerate out and escape orbit. Not one of these things works in a way that makes any kind of common sense. But unfortunately, explaining how it all works is just a teeny bit too complex for one of these short segments. However, if you happen to be in Johannesburg in September, I will be presenting a talk about exactly this at the Scopex Telescope and Astronomy Expo at the Museum of Military History. I'll be using a video game space simulator called Kerbal Space Program to demonstrate, so you'll be able to see all of these concepts in action on the big screen as I speak in real time. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I found that using that game makes concepts that normally take months of lectures to sink in become quite obvious after only a few minutes. I'm looking forward to doing this, and I hope you'll be there. Anyway, as I hinted at there, there is a whole lot more going on with orbits than what I touched on here. There are people who do nothing but work out orbits for spacecraft to explore the solar system, because once you want to start moving around up there, it gets a whole lot more complicated. And in truth, I could have gone on for hours talking about Hohmann transfers, trajectory optimization, the sheer horrific complexity of the maths required to calculate long-term orbits without supercomputers. But that would have taken so many hours, I doubt anybody would be able to hear the whole thing and still remember how we'd started. That's why next month I will be appearing in the auditorium at Scopex to present a talk on exactly these things, with visual aids and a sophisticated piece of space simulation software called Kerbal Space Program. Yeah, that's right. I'll be playing video games on a gigantic screen, launching rockets and putting them into orbits to demonstrate not only what I've talked about here today, but also to show you the more complicated stuff. You'll learn what a Hohmann transfer is, the importance of delta V when navigating through space, 
and how almost everything you need to do to move from point A to point B is the exact opposite of what your surface-bound Earth common sense intuition tells you to do. You can find out more at www.scopex.co.za. But in a nutshell, if you'd like to be there, it is on Saturday the 14th of September at the Museum of Military History in Saxonwald, Johannesburg. The museum charges a 45 rand entrance fee, although children get in for 30 and senior citizens pay only 20 rand. The gates open at 9am and they close at 9pm after the star party ends. There are a series of talks in the auditorium throughout the day, uh, commercial telescope and camera stalls, although the main focus of Scopex has always belonged to the local amateur telescope making community. They all bring along their homemade telescopes, which they are only too proud to show off. There's also an astrophotography competition, and for the first time, they are accepting entries online. So if you're in South Africa and would like to win one of the prizes listed on the website, go find the link on www.scopex.ca.za, read the rules carefully, and submit your photos now. There will also be a number of other interesting displays and events throughout the day, including science shows for the kids and robotics displays. I've been there every year for many, many years now, and it is a highlight of my calendar. There's always a wonderful, relaxed atmosphere, and the entire event proves just what a warm and enthusiastic crowd amateur astronomers are. I'd love to see you there, and I hope you'll come find me and say hello. Anyway, if you've missed out any of these details or have left anything out, just go to scopex.co.za, or you can mail me directly at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. Anyway, we're coming now to the end of the show, so I would like to quickly ask you to help me promote the show by recommending it to a friend and showing them how to find it. We're listed on almost all of the directories, all the ones I've managed to find at any rate, so any podcast app should find it pretty easily in its built-in search function. And if you'd like to find old episodes in the archive, you can always just click the podcast link at www.urban-astronomer.com and scroll down. If you've got any comments or questions, please feel free to tweet me at uastronomer, so letter U and the word astronomer, or mail me directly at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. Although I can't promise that I'll read it out on the air, I do promise to respond to anything that isn't an obvious troll. If you'd like to take our relationship to the next level by adding a few dollars to my budget and get your name added to my Hall of Supporter Appreciation fame, you can also make a pledge on Patreon. Just head over to urban-astronomer.com and click on the Patreon link. It'll take you to a page that shows you exactly what to do. Obviously, you don't have to do this. I don't want to guilt you, but it does help me to keep the show in the air and keep me motivated and, you know. Right then, so uh, that's us. Done. We're finished. The episode is over. Next episode is on the 27th of August and finally features that interview with Dr. Roz Skelton that you were expecting last time. Tragically, we never did manage to recover the original recordings, so we had to do it all over again. The good news, though, is that, in my opinion, this second take was far better. We talked for longer and more depth about more different interesting topics. I think you're going to love it. So remember to subscribe using the links on urban-astronomer.com, whether by email or in your podcast app, uh, to be sure that you get that episode the moment it launches. That's 27 August. I'll see you there. Clear skies. <laughs>